0: Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at 23 verses this morning. Uh, The first 23 verses of Matthew chapter uh, 13. Before we read this though, Daniel, if you can put up those two points. I'm going to just go ahead and give away my entire sermon right here. Uh, This is it. Two points. Life in the kingdom of heaven is a lifelong journey of transformation Point number two, fruit produced by God's transforming righteousness identify Jesus' disciples. All right, let's, let's say these two things together. The first one, life in the kingdom of heaven is a lifelong journey of transformation. Fruit produced by God's transforming righteousness identified Jesus' disciples. Uh, I wanted to to put these two right up front because uh, our our text this morning um, is not real defined. There's three sort of major sections uh, this morning. And I wanted to give you these two things to sort of hang on to uh, so that as we read through these 23 verses and as we look at some pretty major themes, that you'll you'll be able to narrow in a little bit on what I think Jesus' main points are in this text, okay. So hang hang on to those two pieces there, and uh, we'll we'll then interact uh, with them throughout uh, throughout the sermon. So Matthew chapter thirteen, uh, verses one through twenty three. Uh, after I read, I will say, "This is the word of God," and then you, if you're genuinely thankful for the word of God, will with enthusiasm say, "Thanks be to God." Good. Okay. Here we go. Verse one. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things and parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has years, let him hear. Now let me say a couple of things here before we continue on uh, to, to give a little bit of context to this passage. Um, Jesus uh, begins talking about sowing and reaping. It's an agricultural um uh, metaphor and um uh this would have been very familiar to the people who were listening to jesus they knew agriculture they knew farming this was pretty common to them so it's a it's a it's a story it's a parable that makes sense to them he talked about four different kinds of soil the first is a is a path it was common in this day for a farmer uh, when he was sowing his seed to plow up the ground to sow all of the seed and then to plow up the ground again in order to cover up the seed does that make sense so some of us who aren't farmers, like me, might picture digging a hole, putting a seed in it, and then covering it right away. Not real efficient, right? So you plow the whole field, throw your seed out, and then cover it back up. So in the first example, the field's been plowed, but some of the ground is still hard. It's like a path. So the farmer throws his seed on the path, birds come and eat it up. The second soil is rocky. It's, 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 uh, it's not good soil. And again, the people in the crowd would have said, yeah, I know what that's like. I have a farm. Some of the soil's good, some of the soil's not good. I understand how that works. And then the third kind is weeds. So this shows us that the, the soil actually has potential to be good. If weeds are growing, other things can grow, right? Right? So, so, so something can grow there. It just happens to be weeds. Now, here's an interesting thing. In this case, for the first time, the plant actually doesn't die. You see that in the text. The plant still lives. First two cases plant doesn't even live. But in this case, the plant doesn't die. It just doesn't produce a crop, okay? So uh, one scholar says that we kind of see a progression here. The first plant doesn't grow at all. Second plant grows, then dies. Third plant grows, stays alive, doesn't produce any crop. Are you tracking? All right. Then we get to the good soil. This soil grows and produces a crop, and, uh, and Jesus points out that each seed produces a different amount. It's not uniform, but this is the, the good soil that actually allows uh, the seed to grow. Now, people in, in the crowd are going, well, that's nice. Tell us something we don't know. Y- you understand? This it's, it's, it is just common knowledge. There's nothing particularly brilliant or wise about what Jesus has just said. In fact, this is like agriculture for dummies. You know, this is farming for dummies. There's nothing really interesting here. But then what does Jesus say? How does he end this little section? He who has ears, let him hear. So, so all of a sudden, Jesus is doing something in this moment where, they, where, where the crowd goes, oh, 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 this isn't actually about farming. This isn't about agriculture. This isn't about even growing barley or wheat, the two most common crops in that day. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, they're like rewinding. They go, oh, wait, what did he just say? I, I, I wasn't paying attention because I already know about crops. What did he just say? <laughs> he who has ears, let him hear hear. Make sense so far? Make sense? Make sense? Make sense? Okay. Let me read the rest of it here. Uh, Verse 10. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. And then he quotes, Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are you, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed that was sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on the good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or 30 times what was sown. This is the word of God. Um, Daniel, can you put up those two points again, just to refresh our memory? This is, this is where we're going today. Um, but before we get to these two points, I, I need to give you a little bit of background information. So this is going to, maybe to some of you, going to feel a little bit more like some teaching this morning, because there's a whole lot going on here, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to those of us living in our day Uh, Unless we have some of of the background here. So let's start with where this story starts. Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. The passage before, his family had come to him. And Jesus has said, "Uh, actually, my new family, my real family, are those who do the will of my father. My sister, my brother, and my mother. And Matthew says that same day, Jesus goes out. And a huge, a massive crowd follows him. Um, So much so that Jesus needs to kind of find a way to get some space between him and the crowd in order to be able to teach the crowd, to actually speak to the crowd. And so he gets into a boat. So Daniel, let's put up the first slide of, of the lake here. The region that we're in right now is the region of Galilee uh, in Israel. And... Um, uh, this is where Jesus did most of his teaching ministry up until this point. Uh, almost everything that we've read has happened in this area of Galilee right now. Jesus's hometown of Capernaum was in this area. Some of the towns that Jesus has performed his miracles and teachings in, all in this region of the world, all this region of Galilee, known as uh, uh, region of Israel, known as Galilee. So Jesus is is in this boat and uh, and he starts to teach. Now um, this sounds maybe a little odd to us in our uh, day of microphones, loudspeakers, right? All of our, we need all of these cords and everything, right, to set up. Um, so some Israeli scientists performed this experiment a little while ago where they went to like an area that they thought Jesus may have been, and they got a little boat and they pushed off from the shore, and they found that the acoustics were perfect. Uh, there's like these little inlets uh, in the lake where uh, if you push a boat out into it and then, you, you know, have a big crowd standing on the shore, you could hear perfectly someone's voice coming across the lake, right? So, so Jesus' decision to get in the boat not because he's, like, an introvert and just needs a space, you know, like I am. It's a, it's a strategic move, right? How am I going to talk to all these? How are they going to hear me? I'm going to get into a boat. I'm going to push out a little bit. and going to communicate to the crowd, so, so, that's a little bit of, of what's happening right here. So, Jesus is sitting in the boat. Now, let's zoom out a little bit more. He's surrounded by such large crowds. The, the region of Galilee at this time was, was known to be a region of Israel um, that stirred up a lot of dissent. So, a lot of the zealots, a lot of the, uh, uh, the people in opposition to Rome or to the, to the Herods, the, the puppet kings, um, came from Galilee, okay? So, when you and I read there was a big crowd... Um, it's like, oh, cool! People want to hear Jesus, right? Um, but if you were if you were an observer in this day and you saw a huge group of people amassing around one person, it, you're not thinking, "Oh, this is nice. This is a benign something going on." I what, no, no, you know what you're thinking? Revolution. You you know you understand? You're thinking, oh, oh this, is the, this is a new revolutionary. This is a new zealot calling people to himself in order to overthrow the Romans. Okay? Because this happened. This was pretty normal. This is a, a region of Israel that had known many, many crucifixions, um, people who had attempted to overthrow the government. And so Rome crucifies them as a public spectacle to dissuade any other possible revolutionaries. You see? Okay. So, large crowd surrounding Jesus. uh, And these folks have certain expectations for Jesus. Let's call them messianic expectations. These are people who expect that Jesus may be about to do something. We we get a taste of this back in chapter 12, verse 23. Then they brought Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? Now, what is that? Could this be the son of David? Again, this is not like an interesting theological conversation. This is an expectation. We're waiting for somebody to come and rescue us. Could this be the one? We've been told that somebody is going to come and rescue us, is going to defeat our enemies. Could this be the one? Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who will rescue us? What was the expectation uh, the Jewish tradition at this time had some, uh, some, some, some very specific ideas of what would happen when the Messiah came. First, Rome would be defeated. Rome was just the latest in a long line of foreign occupiers, foreign oppressors, okay? So, so the expectation was that Rome was going to be defeated. Because when people looked and said, who is in power, who is in power, there was no question, it's Rome. The foreign occupier. So, so first thing that's going to happen is Rome had to be defeated. Second thing is that the temple had to be rebuilt. The, the current temple had been built by Herod, who was just despised by practicing Jews. Right? Because he was, he, he was illegitimate. He was not a true king. He was propped up by the Romans. So, Rome had to be defeated. A new temple had to be built. God's law had to be reestablished. Okay? Practice God's law, and the last thing was that the exiles needed to return. Because there was this uh, uh, foreign occupying force, many Jews had fled their country, had fled Jerusalem, and were living in places like Egypt right now. So the expectation was that when the Messiah came, the exiles would return. Your aunt and uncle who, who fled, they'd be back. Your cousins, they would come back. Do you see this? Some very specific expectations. So when we hear that this crowd gathered around Jesus, we need to understand that they're showing up wondering, is he the one? Is he the one who's going to fulfill these things, do these things? Is he the one who's going to rescue us from Rome, reestablish proper worship, cleanse the temple, and bring back our family? Is he the one? It's not just a random collection of folks showing up to hear some random person teach is he the one? Let's zoom out even a little bit farther, and then we're going to get into our text. Uh, do we have the uh, Isaiah chapter there, Daniel? A pretty well-known passage uh, at this time. I want you to hear this. This came at a time in the Old Testament when God's people were being uh, exiled uh, from Israel, when they were experiencing attack from, uh, from outside forces, from other empires. And this is what Isaiah is prophesying, is predicting for the nation. He, meaning God, said, go and tell this people. Now listen carefully because we're going to hear this language again in our passage. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I, that's Isaiah, said, for how long, Lord? And he answered until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants. Until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remain in the land, it will be again laid waste. But as the terebinth, that's a kind of tree, and oak, leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. I need you to work with me here for a minute. Um, and this is a stretch for us, but, but the people in the crowd in that day, what I just read, this was their memory. Uh, think about memory for a second. Memory is, is, is that which you don't try to, to think about, right? Memory is, 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 that, is that just what, what just kind of hovers in the back of your head, right? What you've seen, what you've experienced, the values of your family or your people, right? That, that's what memory is. It's just there. We don't get to choose what memories we have, do we? Just there, present, right? This was the memory. This was the memory for the people in the crowd that day. And what was that memory? Two things. One, God's judgment. God's judgment. Isaiah had said to the people, look, you have forsaken God. You've forsaken your first love. You've been warned over and over and over again that you exist as a people to be God's blessing to the entire world. And you've forsaken it over and over again. Judgment. You're going to be scattered. You're going to go into exile." But the passage ends, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is hope. This is a promise. There's judgment, yes. You've forsaken your first love. There's going to be exile. But there's hope. There's a seed that remains. A holy seed that one day will sprout. So the people in the crowd that day, they carry memory of judgment and hope. Does that make sense to you? Okay, I need you to to get that because it's going to help us interpret some of the rest of our passage here. So the Pharisees, this helps us understand the Pharisees who Jesus battles all the time. The Pharisees carry the same memory of God's judgment, of God, of being in exile. Even though the Pharisees live in Israel still, they still carry this sense of exile because after all, the family is still scattered, the people are still scattered. So how are we going to get this hope, this seed to sprout, Pharisees answered that question by saying we're going to keep the law perfectly. This is why they do battle with Jesus all the time. How come your disciples didn't wash their hand? It's not this esoteric question. We are attempting to bring about the growth of this holy seed when God will act on behalf of his people. Defeat Rome, restore worship, bring home the exiles. You see this. This is is why the Pharisees act as they do. It's just not theological battles. They're looking for God to once again act on their behalf, rescue them from exile. That make sense? Okay. Jesus messes all of this up, as he does. Jesus shows up and he says, look, it's not just that you were in judgment. It's just not that a specific people were in judgment. It's that we all stand under under judgment. This is what Jesus said. Jesus says it's, just not, it's not that just a certain people at a certain time stand under judgment. It's that humanity stands under God's judgment. Right? And, 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 and we've seen this already repeatedly, and everybody is invited into the coming kingdom where we're transformed by God's righteousness. So Jesus messes up this whole narrative. The narrative is, look, we as a people, we we went off course, we were judged. We as a people, we're going to get it right. We're going to keep God's law perfectly, and God is going to act on our behalf. That was the narrative. Jesus shows up and says, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 way bigger than that. Way bigger than that. Humanity stands under judgment, and humanity will will be invited into God's coming kingdom. Why? Because the holy seed is sprouting. It's Jesus. You see? You see? I can't tell if you see or not. <laughs> Darius is also helpful for me in this way. If you don't understand anything I say today, just talk to Darius after the service. He'll explain, he'll explain it. Uh, okay, so, so one last thing. And then we'll get to our first point. Um, seriously. <laughs> uh, who are the main characters in this story? We have the backstory now, right? Hopefully you have some kind of sense of what people in the crowd are experiencing, their memory, how they're interpreting who Jesus is. So the main characters in this story are, number one, Jesus. And Jesus is, is what? Jesus is in a boat. What's he doing in the boat? Speaking and sitting. <laughs> it's actually important, right? We said this at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew includes these little details. This is why I think the Bible is accurate, because there's all these little random details. Matthew says when Jesus begins to give his most important teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he does what? sits down. Jesus, when he's out on the boat, beginning his very first parable teachings, what does he do? Sitting in this day is a position of authority. You remember that. For somebody to sit down is to say, I'm speaking, I'm teaching with authority. That's why he concludes that detail. That's why the Sermon on the Mount ends by the people saying, we're amazed at this one. Why? Because he teaches with authority, unlike the people we're used to hearing. Okay? So Jesus, in a boat, sits down. It would make more sense to stand up, it seems, to kind of project better, but no, position of authority, Jesus sits down. That's the first character. Second character are the disciples. Uh, there's probably 12 of them. There's probably 12 of them. It's not a huge boat. Probably couldn't take more than 12, 14 people in it. So it's the 12 disciples. And then across the lake, it's the crowds. We don't know how many people are in the crowds, but it's a big group of folks. I would say that the fourth character in our story today is the parable itself. Jesus has uh, uh, told parables in Matthew up until this point. There's only been a few of them, and they're only about a sentence long, short. And we've never heard the word parable yet in Matthew. This is the first time we actually hear that word, parable. Matthew uses it in our passage, as does Jesus. So there's something significant about that. So let's call that our fourth character. Jesus, the disciples, the crowds, and then the parable itself, okay? Point number one. Life in the kingdom of heaven is a lifelong journey of transportation. Of transportation? (laughs) Journey. I was thinking journey. Transportation. What's the name of the sermon series? Transformation. Life in the kingdom of heaven is a lifelong journey of transformation. Uh, The disciples asked this question in verse 10. We've kind of reviewed the first verses already as we read through them. In verse 10, the disciples uh, say to Jesus, Why do you speak to the people in parables? Now, picture... um, You know, like, the boat's over here and Jesus is over here. Maybe the crowd is all the way over back by Mitchell and the sound equipment, okay? So Jesus has just kind of projected across the water this parable, but now we're listening to sort of the quiet conversation, right? Crowds can't hear this stuff, right? It's like, hey, Jesus, hushed voice, how come you're using parables? Why are you teaching in parables? This is a really, really important question for us. Um, Parables are not illustrations, Parables are not uh, cute little uh, sermon illustrations. Parables aren't object lessons. It's, parables are not similes or metaphors. Parables are something entirely different, and it's, it's a, a form of communication that we don't use a lot uh, in our day. So it's a little, a little confusing or a little abnormal to us. But it's a legitimate question that the disciples ask. Why are you teaching in parables? Parables in themselves are, are, are a narrative description. They're a story, about something, now listen to this, that must be entered into to understand. Parables are a story about something, but that story must be entered into to understand. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. <laughs> Let me give you an example. Uh, can we put that can we put that slide up of the, the movie? Did anybody see anybody see this movie that Daniel's about to pull up? Who saw, who saw the movie Inception? Oh, wow, like 90% of you. Okay. Um, I think this is a parable. I think this is a parable. Here's why I think this is a parable. This is why I think it's a parable. Carlos Dodson and I are sitting in his basement, talking about our church, making plans, you know, discussions, and Michelle and her mother, Mr. Gina, they come downstairs. Hi, how you doing? Where you been? Oh, we just saw Inception. I was like, oh, is that a good movie? Michelle's like, yeah, it was the third time I saw it in the theater. <laughs> i like, what? That's weird. That's, you know. Um, and then I saw it. And I went, oh. I know why you saw it three times. The director, Christopher Nolan, is brilliant in this film, right? He's brilliant in kind of layering in these questions. I'm not going to say anything specific because you might want to see it um, if you haven't. Um, layering in these questions throughout the film, these layers of meaning, right? And, and I don't think at any point, at least... I've only seen it once, and for me, definitely not. There's there's no point in the in the movie that you go, oh, I totally get it. <laughs> Anybody had that experience? Okay, uh, and even at the very even at the very end, right? The very I'm not giving that you won't even know. Even then, like I don't know what your theater was like, but we were all like. like waiting for the credits to end. Are they going to tell us something at the very, you know? But no, he doesn't. Brilliant move on his part. Why? Because it forces you to step into it. The only way that you can interact, I think, with this film is to step into it. You can't just sit back and go, oh, yeah, I totally get it. Yeah, I totally get it. He's saying that this is to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's making a metaphor of modern-day life. in No, 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 no. You have to actually step into this film, Inception, to even begin to get where he's coming from. And even then, you're probably going to share your interpretation with somebody, and they're going to be like, no, wrong. Clearly, that's not what it is. This is what a parable is. This is what a parable is. So when the disciples say to Jesus, why are you teaching the crowds in parables? It's like saying, why would you, why would you show inception to try to make a point? Everybody's going to be frustrated. Well, that's an interesting story. I have no idea what the point was. You see this. Jesus, why are you choosing to teach? It's a legitimate question because how does Jesus start his ministry? In chapter 3 of Matthew, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You hear the urgency. Something has happened. The Messiah has come. The kingdom of heaven is coming near now. Repent. Urgency. So why then a parable? Why then choose a form of communication that's not efficient in any way? you see the question? This is the best way I know how to answer. This is the best way I know how to answer uh, the disciples' question. Why do you choose Jesus to teach in parables? And it's our first point. Because life in the kingdom of heaven is a lifelong journey of transformation. I teach in parables, I teach in parables because the kingdom of heaven isn't this self-contained thing that I can take and hold and now I get it. It's not a set of three propositions that once I have them memorized, I'm good to go. It's not a little booklet that if I can kind of get the different laws and things and steps and bridges, then I'm, no. Life in the kingdom of heaven is going to take us the rest of our lives to even begin understanding. It's a journey of transformation. You see this? This is the best way that I know how to answer the disciples' questions. Why are you choosing such an inefficient means of communication? Because, because, because. I'm inviting people. I'm inviting people into a lifelong journey of being transformed into the very image of God. And a parable does this. A parable invites us to step into something new, something different. To explore it, to wrestle with it, to try to understand, to talk about it. Something that's so completely different than what we've experienced. A parable begins to invite us into this. Uh, Luke, another one of Jesus' biographers in the 17th chapter of Luke, he, he, he records this story, and I think it's helpful for our topic today. Once, on, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. You hear that? Jesus said, you can't just go, oh, there's there's the kingdom of God right there. So if you just can grab a hold of that, if you can just get your head around that, if you can just memorize that, if you can just stop doing that, then you're good. Jesus said, no, the kingdom isn't like that kingdom isn't like that the kingdom of god is present it's in our midst the parable begins inviting us into this new reality of god's coming kingdom in jesus i think you and i know this experientially whether we think about this or not those of us who've been christians for a while um, we I, I think at least, we, we regularly have these moments where we feel like we've, we have a whole new understanding of what Jesus has done for us. And you know, you, 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 when you first become a Christian, maybe you're like, oh, I get it. I get what Jesus has done for me. Um, and then, like a month later or a year later, or 10 years later, you're in a conversation where you're going through some kind of crisis or, some, or you're watching Inception or I don't know. <laughs> and all of a sudden, oh, oh, oh. Jesus did that for me. Anybody have that experience? Okay, a few of us. We think, oh, I know what Jesus is about. Oh, I know what this kingdom of heaven is about. Oh, I know what it means to be a Christian. I got it down. And then something happens. We go, oh, I didn't get it at all. Oh, I just had a taste of how good God is. Oh, I just had a taste of the holiness of God. just had a taste. I got more. This is what I mean by a lifelong journey of transformation. We don't say yes to Jesus and then just hang out till we die. We don't just say yes to Jesus and hang out and say, I hope you come back soon. No, oh, because we, when we say yes to Jesus, we're only, we're only, only at the very beginning of this journey with Jesus. Amen? A long way to go. A lot to learn. entire life to be transformed still. I think those of you who are not Christians probably know this experientially as well, this idea of a lifelong journey, because some of you have been pursuing Jesus or, or seeking Jesus or wondering about Jesus, and you see the beautiful things about Jesus. And then there's all these other things. really confusing. It don't make any sense. If you're like me, at least. And you go, "Oh, I get some of this, That looks good. But this over here, oh, that's still strange to me. Giving up my entire will, oh, I don't know. Is that really love? Submitting completely to a God who I can't see, ah, oh, I, don't, I don't know. I think all of us know experientially, experientially. That saying yes to Jesus is not just an instantaneous, I got it forever, I'm good. It's a lifelong process of transformation. This is why I love our community groups, frankly. I think this is one of the really good places that this happens in our church. Where people who come from all kind of different perspectives, backgrounds, histories, length of time following Jesus or not following Jesus, come together around this book, the Bible, and say, what do you think about this? I think it's in that moment that you and I have opportunities to go, oh, I never thought about it like that. Oh, I never saw it like that. This is, this, is why we need, this is why we need each other, because speaking to one another from the place we come from, not pretending like we're somebody else, not, not glossing over who we are, where we come from, we need that in our church, because I need you to tell me things about God from the Bible that I might have missed otherwise, amen? I need those moments of going, oh, I only had a taste. I just got to take another step on this lifelong journey of transformation, amen? Amen, amen, okay. Um, I, well, another way to think about this um, is, um, is learning a, a new culture. Um, do we have anybody in our church whose families immigrated to the United States? Anybody? So we've got a handful of folks. Um, uh, my, when I grew up in, in Venezuela. Our family moved when I was like two or three years old. And, and there's, this, um, there's this experience of being in a new culture uh, that's not your own. That's, that's really kind of uh, disconcerting at least initially, because you know that you don't get it. I have this vivid memory. I was sharing this with a friend this week. I have this vivid memory of, of going to school in Venezuela, the Spanish-speaking school, and, um, and, and being out on the playground and, and having to work really hard to know when to laugh with the other kids because I, I couldn't understand everything. My Spanish was not that great yet, right? And so I'm, I'm trying to pick up on all the little cues, you know, of when something's funny. But you also don't want to be the guy who's like, ah, and everybody's quiet, you know, because there's, no there's no better way. Like, I'm already white, no one else, you know, so you're really going to stand out. And so I think some of you maybe can relate to that. I've had that sort of immigrant experience um, where you just know you don't get it. You're just very aware. This is new. Man, the expectations here are just... Why did they do that? Uh, this, this, I think, is a metaphor for life in the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's brand new. We've said this throughout the sermon series. It's an upside-down kingdom. We don't know what to expect. We've been formed and shaped in very specific ways in our world, and now we step into this kingdom, and, of course, it's going to be a lifelong journey of transformation takes years and years and years and years. And do you know what? I went back uh, to South America when I was in college. I spent most of my life, I went back to South American college for a three-month internship, and after a month and a half, I was just, I was mad all the time. Because everybody's late. (laughs) I'm like, I still don't get it. I still don't, like, I spent most of my life in this culture, and still, I might think I've got, and I remember, like, the, the moment sitting in this little apartment there in Bolivia, being like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait, wait, wait!" Totally different understanding of time. Totally different way of interacting with time that I've totally, I totally—I just have—I've missed. This is why those of us who've been Christians for a long time have a lot of humility. Ought to have a lot of humility. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. She's like ought. <laughs> we got a long way to go. There's so much of Jesus that we haven't seen yet. There's so much of this beautiful new life in the kingdom that we haven't experienced yet. There's still so many ways that we've been shaped by the world, by our predominant culture that we carry with us. Deep humility. Deep humility. So, so, parables invite the disciples, let's call them the insiders, okay? They invite the disciples, the insiders, and the crowd, who at this point are the outsiders. They stand outside of the kingdom of heaven. They invite both of them into lifelong transformation in a way that just a simple, literal teaching couldn't do in this case, okay? What's the invitation? The invitation is to hear and understand. It's a gracious invitation. Think about the disciples. They were, not that long ago, outsiders, right? They were outsiders. It was only through Jesus' gracious invitation that they stepped into the kingdom of heaven. So this isn't a sense of, like, here's the line. Here's the lake. You got the insiders in the boat and the outsiders on the the shore, and there's no in-between. No, this is an invitation because the disciples themselves were outsiders not that long ago. They carry with them, just like everybody else, this memory, judgment, exile, and they've been invited now into this new kingdom. Jesus quotes this passage from Isaiah, again, very well known. He says, for the people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. But now watch this. Otherwise, if their eyes were opened, if their ears were opened, they might see, they might hear, they might understand in turn. And what will God do? Heal them. Invite them in. Welcome them in. Outsiders become insiders in the kingdom of heaven. So there's there's a a way that Jesus kind of interacts with this throughout this middle section of the parable. And he he basically compares the insiders and the outsiders. He uses the word them and the word you. You is for the disciples. Them is for those on the crowd. So what do we see here? Them, they're the first three seeds. The rocky soil, the hard soil, the, the soil with weeds. You, disciples, you're the good soil. Them, outside of the kingdom at this point. You, as we said last week, children of God the Father, siblings to Jesus. You, or them, increasingly confused about Jesus. You, growing in knowledge and love. This is what I think is happening. Look at verse 12. Those who have will be given more, and they will have an abundance. As for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why the parable, it's very important that we understand why Jesus is using parables here. Because those on the outside may may for a time at least be increasingly confused about Jesus. You're not meeting our expectations. You're not meeting our messianic expectations. No, we got a list of what you're supposed to do. We carry this memory of what's going to happen now, and it's not happening. So I'm confused. There's bits of you that seem right, but there's a whole lot about you that just doesn't fit. But those within the kingdom, those, the, the, those who have placed their trust in Jesus, they're gaining more and more. Jesus says an abundance. Why? Because they stepped into the mystery that is Jesus. So they're growing now in their knowledge. They're gaining more to an abundance. Insiders and outsiders. Them, they're hearing but not understanding. Seeing but not hearing. You, blessed because you see and hear. This is an invitation. This is an invitation for outsiders to become insiders. But it's it's also clarifying that there's a difference. There's a difference in somebody who's placed their trust in Jesus and how they will understand Jesus. Did you know that? Did you know that? That there's a difference in how we understand Jesus when we've actually placed our trust in Jesus. Those on the shore are going to look at Jesus and understand him very differently than those in the boat. Not because those in the boat are any smarter. Clearly not. We've seen that over and over again. But what? They've placed their trust in Jesus. They've experienced Jesus. They've stepped into the parable, as it were. Right? So they experience him differently. They know him differently than those outside. Have you experienced this before? (laughs) Have you experienced this before? Those of you who are Christians, and you have a conversation with somebody who's like way the heck smarter than you are. (laughs) Just me, huh? (laughs) Man, I had this, I was at this pizza place one time and I was sitting at the bar and I was trying to do some reading and this guy came and sat next to me and uh, I really didn't want to talk to anybody. Uh, Really, it was like a Sunday evening, you know, I was done. And this guy's so chatty. And so we're talking, what are you reading? I'm like, well, this theology book for class. Oh, theology. So he ends up being a college professor. Which, no offense, Curtis, but man. And uh, so he's like, sweet, mm, you know, and just asking me all these questions. And I'm doing my best, you know. And I, and I walk away thinking two things. One, I should never go into apologetics. That is really not a strength of mine. And two, there's no way for me to completely explain Jesus to you outside of what I've experienced in his kingdom. I can give you maybe a little taste. I can maybe have you read one of Jesus' parables to try to get you to step into it a little bit. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, There's only so much I can say. Does that make sense to you? Some of you know that. Some of you are in that place where you're like, I just can't quite get there with Jesus because of that. That's okay. That's okay. Point number two. Last point. Fruit produced by God's transforming righteousness is what identified disciples of Jesus. Fruit produced Produced by God's transforming righteousness, identify disciples of Jesus. Uh, so we, we've seen now this parable, we've seen Jesus talk about the parable, and then Jesus goes on to explain this specific parable. And he talks about the path. He says, The path is the, is the hard soil, and when the seed is not taken in, the evil one comes and he snatches it away. And then there's the rocky soil where there's no real roots, there's nothing that sustains faith. I think many in the crowd are like this they're interested in Jesus. They've been, let's say, externally stimulated by what's going on in the crowd. Oh, let's check this out. But there's no roots. And we're going to see this throughout Matthew, that many, many, many uh, fall away or end up opposing Jesus. Um, Can I say to the college students in the room that this soil may be the most dangerous one for you? In my experience, in my experience, college students um, can be externally stimulated to follow Jesus. Right, Because you're in this environment, that may, especially if you're in a non-Christian environment, that might seem kind of hostile to the faith, and you find this community of Christians, and it's exciting, and it's deeply like you're in each other's lives, and you know, all this good stuff, right? Lauren, InterVarsity, you know, like great stuff. And then you graduate. And here's what happens, I've noticed, with college students. Two, two, two options. One, and Jesus says this, you're going to face persecution and trouble. And that's when it becomes clear what kind of soil it is. One option, you face persecution and trouble, and you fall deeper in love with Jesus. There's roots. There's roots. It's good soil. Second option is the plant withers and dies, because there were no roots. There was external stimulation. There was maybe mental stimulation. There was maybe like you were getting your relational needs met. Can I say that, college students? I hope you still come back next week. It's not just students, of course. It's all of us, right? Who who need to watch out for this? How do we know if this is happening when trouble and persecution come? When crisis happens, when the bottom falls out, how do you respond? Does plant wither and die, or does it continue to grow? And then then the third one, the thorns, the weeds. Um, Jesus said, "This this is the attraction of the world," and we're going to see Jesus interact with this one throughout uh, the rest of the book of Matthew here. Uh, But basically, uh, a life in the kingdom means growing to love Jesus above everything else, right? That's this lifelong journey of transformation that we're on. But this, this opposes the natural flow of our lives. Can I tell you that the older that we get, the more we care about status, the more we care about safety, the more we care about possessions. That's how it works. The older we get, the more security we need, the more safety we need, the more kind of things mean to us. We can look back on our younger days and go, man, I didn't care about it. I would go anywhere at a drop of a hat. Life in the kingdom opposes sort of the natural flow of our our humanity. To place more and more trust in security, status, possessions. The weeds, the thorns, Jesus calls them. Here's the interesting thing about this one. The plant is still alive. This is a hard word for us. The plant is still alive. It's just not producing any fruit. Can we admit that, that, that many of us who call ourselves Christians are not producing any fruit? That's not a judgmental word. This is just Jesus' language. Hey, there's a plant there. It's growing. It's not dead. It didn't wither. The seed took. No fruit. No fruit. I think it can be very common in Christianity because the only indication of it is a lack of a crop, lack of a fruit. And so we confess Jesus, but we're stingy with our time, our treasures, and our talent. We confess Jesus, but we get our identity from our career, from our accomplishments, or from our children even. We confess Jesus, but we accept that just ongoing sin and addiction in our life is just going to be normal. We confess Jesus, but we trade radical grace for predictable religion. We confess Jesus, but we remain oblivious to the plight of students in our city. We confess Jesus, but we ignore the benefits that many of us have received from a life of privilege and power. This is is the plant. It's alive. But the seeds, the weeds, the thorns have choked out any crop, any fruit. Uh, For these first three, I think we could just say it this way. There are many, many ways to encounter Jesus and still remain outside the kingdom of heaven. Can I say that? There are many ways to encounter Jesus, to know Jesus, to talk about Jesus, to sing about Jesus, and still remain outside the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is getting at here with these first three seeds. The seed was there. The soil encountered the seed. There was no fruit. Can you hear that? Is that too heavy? There's good news coming. There's always good news coming. Fourth seed, the children of God. What's the difference between this last seed and the first three seeds? This one, the soil, Jesus says, it hears, it understands. Now, what is this not? This is not simply an intellectual understanding of the kingdom. Uh, in many ways, we could say to the disciples, they don't understand Jesus. They don't understand the kingdom if we're only talking about their intellect. Amen? Let me give you some examples. Chapter 14, Jesus says to the disciples, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Chapter 16, Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> see? You see? You see? Chapter 24, Jesus says to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Chapter 26, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Chapter 26 again, this very night, Jesus says, You will all fall away on account of me. Hearing and understanding clearly is not just related to, I totally get it intellectually. And it's clearly not related to, I'm going to obey everything Jesus says. Right? Because the disciples didn't. They fell away. They didn't understand who Jesus was all the time. So, what is this? What's going on here? Uh, The disciples, they have understood, Jesus said, they've understood the word, the seed that has been planted. How is this possible? Simply put, they are learning to trust Jesus. They are learning to trust Jesus. They are learning to trust Jesus above everything else. Have they arrived? No way. They totally get it? No way. Do they always understand everything he says? Clearly not. Do they always love their neighbors as themselves? No. They're horrible at that. Are they completely loyal to Jesus? No. Are you feeling better yet? (laughs) Gospel, 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 gospel. So what makes Jesus so sure that their eyes see and their ears hear? What gives Jesus the confidence to sit in this boat and to say, blessed are you. They're going to betray him. They're, They're going to say stupid things. They're going to be in competition with each other. They're not going to be motivated out of love. What gives Jesus the confidence to stand in that boat and say, oh, your eyes see, your ears hear, your hearts understand. Blessed are you. What gives Jesus the confidence to do that? It's the second point. Fruit produced by God's transforming righteousness identified disciples of Jesus. There's fruit in their lives. There's growth. May not be pretty, may not be constant, but there's fruit. They've left everything. They're following Jesus. They're still there. Others have left. There's fruit. There's fruit. Uh, This is how Jesus says it in chapter 7. We read this a few weeks ago. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear uh, bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. That's it. That's it. Fruit. Crop. So, uh, we're going to close up here. Do we see what the disciples saw? Do we hear what the disciples hear? Do we understand what the disciples understood? In, in, In verse 16, Jesus says something really significant. Right in the middle of our passage today, he says, Blessed are you, talking to the disciples, blessed are you because your eyes... Uh, blessed are your eyes because of what they see and your ears because of what they hear. Now, now, listen, for truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. And Jesus says, there were righteous women and men in ages past who would have loved to be standing where you're standing today. But it's you. You get to be here. So what is it that they're seeing? Why are they blessed? What is it that they see and hear? They're experiencing They're experiencing what these men and women of old wanted to see. That holy seed. Remember back in Isaiah? That holy seed, after judgment, that was left in the land, left in the stump, is sprouting. The holy seed that one day was going to bring hope and redemption. It's coming in Jesus. What is it that they see? What is it that they hear? What is it that they understand? Not just some teaching, not just some intellectual understanding of the gospel or the kingdom or Jesus. No, they are in the presence of the seed that is now growing. Do you see this? The seed that Isaiah talked about in Jesus is sprouting. The same passage that Jesus refers to is this passage of the seed that is now growing. This This is how John talks about it. He talks about a seed as well. John chapter 12, verses 23 through 24. Mark that passage down. John 12, 23 through 24. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground, it dies and remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Who's Jesus talking about? Himself. Himself. Can I read that to you again? Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The seed looking for good soil, what's that seed? Huh? It's Jesus himself. The word in this passage, the word, it's Jesus himself. The word taking on flesh. It's Jesus himself. The seed that has to fall to the ground and die in order that other seeds can come up is Jesus himself. Amen? This is the mystery of the gospel that Jesus invites us to step into through these parables. The seed is Jesus himself. In order for this holy seed in Isaiah's word to truly transform us and produce fruit in us, that seed first has to die. You see that. If a seed is going to produce fruit, new crop, it has to fall to the ground and die so that the plant can grow and new seed be born. You see this. It's not just some metaphorical thing that Jesus is throwing out there. Oh, it's kind of like a seed that's got to find good soil. No, 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 no. The seed is Jesus himself who will lose his life so that we can gain life. Amen. If Jesus, in Jesus was perfect life, but the life first had to die, because you and I, we had no ability to transform ourselves. We can't, tra- we can't do it. We can't transform ourselves. We have to enter into this lifelong journey of transformation through Jesus. We had no ability to produce fruit that would last by ourselves. something only Jesus in us can do. So it was for our sake that Jesus died, was buried in the ground like a kernel of wheat. Can you think of it like that? Think about Jesus' body hanging on a cross, being buried in the ground, covered up. Jesus says, "Like a kernel of wheat, had to die so that I could so that I could grow. Resurrection. And it's not just resurrection for Jesus' sake, it's resurrection for our sake as well. So that we don't just understand that about Jesus. We don't just know that about Jesus. We also experience resurrection. We also experience new life. We also now have the ability to actually bear fruit that will last. Something we couldn't do on our own. Is that good news? The Son of God, the Son of God laid in the ground, covered up, giving His life so that, so that we could experience life that would last, life eternal, life that would bear fruit. Uh, Let's pray. Jesus, we... um, we thank you that there's not, a, um, there's not an easy formula uh, to, to life in your kingdom. Uh, there's not a, a, a simple equation that we must follow in order to uh, gain your approval. Lord, we thank you that rather you, um, you chose to invite us into, into a, a journey of transformation, into a lifelong, you, you call it the narrow way in the Sermon on the Mount. Where we experience you, we learn to be placing our trust in you, but we still have this entire road of transformation ahead of us. God, we thank you that there wasn't just a a moment that you thought about us and then you moved on to the next thing, but that you've invited us, as we learned last week, into your family, to walk beside you and be transformed by you. We we, we too, we Lord, we thank you that, that our lives can bear fruit. God, we know ourselves pretty well. Um, We know how distracted we can be. We know our sinfulness. We know our past. We know the stuff we carry with us. Even today, and to be able to even stand here and say, our lives can bear fruit, beautiful fruit, fruit that, that, that gives life to those around us, fruit that reflects the glory of our Father, fruit that demonstrates new life welling up in us, this is a miracle, God, we know ourselves well enough to know that 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 evidence evidence of of life being fruit is something that only you can do in us. And so, God, we, we thank you for inviting us into this lifelong relationship where you're going to be transforming us from the inside out through your righteousness. Thank you for loving us so much to not just save us at one moment, but to continually walk beside us as family. And thank you that our lives matter. God, thank you that you have, uh, are, are doing a work in us that allows our lives to matter profoundly for the good of the world. And so, God, I close and I pray for our church that this would be a church of people who bear good fruit, whose, 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 soil, whose soil would be good, not rocky, not a hard path, Not covered with weeds that choke out growth, but good soil that allow your new life, your new life to spring up in us, that allow you to bear good fruit in our lives. We want to be that kind of church, Lord. So I pray now that your Holy Spirit, even as we close uh, with this last song, that your Holy Spirit would be showing us where the weeds have crept up. Showing us where the soil has gotten rocky, where our roots have gotten thin. Holy Spirit, do that work. Holy Spirit, we ask that you at the same time, at the same time, encourage us that your life in us allows us to bear good fruit for your glory's sake. Lift our hearts, allow this to be gospel to us, that you don't require perfection, that you don't require us to perfectly understand you it requires us to trust you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All the glory. Lord, All the glory belongs to you. All the glory belongs to you. Oh God. Would you find some time this week and just ask what kind of soil is my heart? I think when we walk away from a parable and we go, oh, I get it, I'm good to go, we're missing it. This is an invitation to maybe step into something that we haven't considered for a while, to reflect on our hearts in a way that maybe we haven't for a while. Would you find a time this week and just, what, how's my heart? What's the soil like? Can you do that? Can you do that? Um, Please come back on Wednesday night. We start at 7. Show up a little bit early because the band's going to be starting a little bit early. Bring some folks with you for this concert of prayer. We're going to worship God together exuberantly, passionately. We're going to celebrate communion together, kind of the time of confession and repentance, okay? So bring some folks with you. Be back here this Wednesday at 7 o'clock. Let me pray for you, and then, and then team, take us out on that song. God, uh, we, we, we ask now that you... Um, You orient our eyes and our hearts and our ears in a way that demonstrates our understanding of you. Not that we totally get you, not that our intellect can ever completely grasp you, not that we'll always be loyal to you, but that we're experiencing fruit in our lives because of your transforming righteousness. Be gospel, be good news to us this week in this way. We pray, Lord Jesus, and everybody said, Amen. We'll see you next week. Thank you.